You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And good afternoon, I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, April 27, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel continues an ongoing series on how climate change impacts Indiana. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their ongoing strike against Indiana University. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news briefing. I'm Nathaniel Weinzapfel. The Caviar King, otherwise known as David Cox, the once infamous illegal poacher of paddlefish along the Ohio River, has once again made headlines, as his relative has been sentenced in federal court for the illegal harvesting of paddlefish. Joseph Scheiger must serve five years probation for catching paddlefish and cutting them open to take their eggs. These fish are considered threatened under Ohio law, and only commercially approved fishing of them is allowed in parts of the Ohio River controlled by Indiana and Kentucky. Since Joseph caught the fish in Ohio and brought them to Indiana, he violated the Federal Lacey Act, which prohibits the legal transportation of wildlife if said wildlife was illegally caught in the state it was taken from. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released a statement thanking the investigators who had been working to stop the greed of Joseph and similar legal wildlife traffickers. Judge Tanya Walton Pratt of the Southern District of Indiana recently ruled in favor of environmental groups who have spent four years fighting a proposal to log and control burn areas of the Hoosier National Forest close to Lake Monroe. The proposal, called the Houston South Project, wanted to restore oak and hickory trees to the forest after the logging and burning. The Monroe County Board of Commissioners and the Hoosier Environmental Council were concerned that rainfall following the burns could lead to more sediment entering the Lake Monroe watershed and potentially contaminate Bloomington's drinking water supply. While Judge Pratt did dismiss claims that endangered species, such as the Indiana bat, would be impacted, the environmental groups have considered this ruling as a success and the health of the lake protected. Across the ocean, the country of Italy has recently voted in its country's parliament to include protections for both animals and the environment in its nation's constitution. This section of the constitution, titled Article 9, previously protected the natural landscape and heritage of the country, but the new amendment would now mandate that the country, quote, protect the environment, biodiversity, ecosystems, and animals in the interest of future generations, unquote. 
The World Wildlife Fund's chapter in Italy was supportive of the change due to the protections it now enshrines into the nation's most important document. Other areas of the world, including Argentina in 1994 and the Alaska State Constitution, have included similar environmental preservation amendments into their constitutions. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro reported on a shooting at Kalau Rumbar over the Little 500 weekend. We turn to Shapiro's report for more. A terrible quiet descended upon North Walnut Street here in Bloomington early Saturday morning when... In the throes of celebration for the Little 500 bicycle race, a lone gunman fired three shots inside the Kalau nightclub, wounding a 26-year-old man in the pelvis, followed by a 41-year-old and 22-year-old man, both of whom were shot in the thighs. In the confusion that followed, the suspect fled the scene, leaving their victims behind. Just as the gunpowder was settling in the nightclub, reports of another shooting began to surface this one near the intersection of 6th Street and Lincoln. A 26-year-old man was found in the front passenger seat of a vehicle with a gunshot wound to his abdomen. All four victims were rushed via IU Health ambulances to IU Bloomington Hospital. As of this report's airing, two of the Kalau nightclub shooting victims were in stable condition, with one victim having been released. As for the victim of the 6th and Lincoln Street attack, their condition was reported as critical after having undergone emergency surgery upon arriving at the hospital. Soon after, police pursued a vehicle that crashed on the campus of Indiana University. At least two people were arrested. At this time, it is not known if both attacks or the car involved in the chase with police were connected. All three incidents are being investigated separately, but are ongoing. Although Bloomington police declined to comment for this story, Investigators discovered video surveillance from inside the Kalau nightclub on Saturday afternoon. The video shows the suspect and one of the victims engaged in an altercation just prior to the shooting. The suspect can then be seen producing a handgun before firing multiple times into the crowded bar. According to a Bloomington police report released Saturday, it is believed that there was only one shooter inside the nightclub. The police report also stated that investigators continue to search for witnesses and are reviewing surveillance footage from nearby cameras regarding the second shooting near 6th and Lincoln. Shortly after the shooting at Kalau nightclub, WFHB News interviewed eyewitnesses who had rushed to the scene moments after and who chose to remain anonymous. Well, he lives right over there, like literally 50 feet away from here. So we were walking his house and we just saw all the police cars and we just wanted to check it out. And saw the just, yellow tape? Yeah. And then we saw like some girls crying and then we heard that there was a shooting. So we were just walking back to my house. We just saw the cops and we were checking the scene. We just saw the girls crying. 
They said three bullets. <laughs> Some other people said like six were shot. I have no idea. Nothing. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen in Bloomington. Besides like our parties at our fraternity. But <laughs> yeah. And not joking matters. It's nuts. I've never seen this many cop cars and police in yellow tape. Sources also spoke with a witness whose group was inside the Kalau nightclub when the shots rang out and who were searching for their friend who had vanished at some point in the attack. All members of the group chose to remain anonymous as well. This ain't no this ain't no joke, dude. This is no joke, bro. This is like, actually like, it's just like actually. You no, know, we wanted to come out, have fun with the boys and everything, and this just had to happen. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? This is not, this is not okay, man. Like, it's not, it's not okay for the community. It's pretty much like think about how much you care about your people, like your friends, all that stuff, dude. You know, like. Like, this is crazy, bro. Like, where are you at, bro? This is probably someone who doesn't even, who doesn't, who's not the Oscar. friend was found to be safe shortly after this interview concluded. In the wake of this unexpected act of violence, a weekend of revelry, friendly competition, and goodwill had become one of conflict, chaos, confusion, and bloodshed. However, the little 500 bicycle races continued on as scheduled, with fans in attendance for the first time in two years, and no further incidents of gun violence were reported. If Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. Up next, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their ongoing strike against Indiana University. We turn now to that segment. Strike Mike. On Sunday, April 10th, a 97.8 affirmative vote by IU graduate workers set into motion the largest indefinite strike Bloomington has seen in decades. Every day that we can, WFHB's Strike Mike will bring you to the front lines of this movement, allowing you to understand the issues and the action through the voices of the participants themselves. Today at the picket, we attended the provost's meeting with uh, his luncheon with the new student body. Um, he tried to tell us that this was a union meeting, uh, that this was his attempt to negotiate with grad workers, even though he didn't actually invite any grad workers or anyone from the union. So we decided to go to him instead. We did not end up seeing him, but I hope he heard us. Uh, the picket was very loud, very exciting. Um, everyone seemed incredibly motivated, and I think the fact that we were right outside the door where the provost was supposed to be definitely got people excited. Um, following the indoor chanting and the loud uh, disruption, we then went outside where 
pretty much the entire campus could hear people screaming on the picket line, shouting for union recognition. Um, in addition to chants and slogans, we also had sing-alongs and a salsa dancing class. So I think the energy from the picket now is we're really enjoying it. Um, I think we've finally hit our stride on reaching a balance between sending a message and also having a lot of fun. We voted today as well. The vote ended today at 2 p.m. with 867 to 39 votes in favor of continuing the strike, which is about 95.7%. Um, so it seems like we have a super majority in favor of going on for a third week. Excitement seems to be just as high as it was at the very beginning, and I don't think it's slowing down at all. My name is Rory Barron. My pronouns are he and his. I'm a first year PhD student in gender studies. I think the strike is going pretty well. We just finished the vote today um, and it was something like, uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, something like 95% or something. Um, who voted yet? 95.7, yeah. Um, which is a great turnout considering um, it's week two um, and we've broken so many records already. We're creating a historical precedent on IU. Um, and I know people are a little tired right now. They're a little spread thin. Um, but I think despite that, or maybe because of it, there's just this amazing energy on campus that's happening right now. Um, and we're doing a really great job of maintaining it um, and being creative in our approaches for how to approach the strike and how to sustain it. Um, and I think overall, we're doing really great out here. We're creating a precedent at IU, um, even already, um, like at this point in the strike, we've already created a precedent. Um, a thousand plus students striking is amazing. First time in IU history, as far as I know. Um, and then we've also broken several strike records um, across the country for these kind of strikes. So I think that's amazing. And I think the strike is going very well. Today's vote was just a continuation vote. Um, so whether or not to uh, extend the strike for another week or not, between now and May 3rd, on May 3rd, we'll have another vote um, again on whether or not to continue. Um, so we'll see how it goes then. Um, but yeah, it's just a continuation vote. So basically, we've been doing this for the last two weeks um, and we'll just continue again for another week and we'll continue picketing, we'll continue striking, um, we'll continue talking with each other, with um, trying to talk with the men, um, talking with faculty and such. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what the vote means today. So gender studies is a pretty unique place um, compared to other departments. I mean, every department's unique, right? And gender studies is not an exception for that. It's just gender studies. I'm, I'm lucky to be in gender studies at this point in time because we're such a progressive department um, and we're so invested in this issue of labor in a really social justice oriented way because it's not only a commitment to us as people, but also a commitment to us as scholars because gender studies kind of sets the precedent for conversations in social justice, you know, actions and uh, social justice movements, because we're really a kind of combination of both praxis and scholarship. And our department is very much values that uh, and embodies that in practice. So, uh, yeah, the conversations have been really good. I mean, there's been a lot of good support in my department, like all of our faculty are on board supporting us. Um, and all the grad students are on board um, supporting us, even if they're not even here. Um, because some of them are on fellowship, you know, ABD, and they're elsewhere, you know, dissertating or whatnot. But even then, you know, we've had we've been able to come together in such a cohesive way as a department, which is really lucky and really great. And I feel like we're all committed to this union. Um, and I'm committed to it as someone who is new here, um, but also my family. Um, I'm from Kentucky, um, which is, you know, coal state. Um, and uh, I've had a lot of families, members historically been involved in unions. Um, and so I come from this kind of 
labor-involved history, uh, family history, but also coming into this place um, at IU and hearing my uh, cohort mates and my uh, classmates talk about a lot of the union issues that they've been um, trying to I mean, they've been working to achieve this goal for the last several years. Um, and so uh, seeing that, um, I don't know, it just kind of really motivated me to get involved and to do what I can for this community as, that I'm now a part of. Uh, we haven't had like a lot of issues around it. We've just all been like, okay, what does this look like for us as a department? How are we going to get involved in this larger group? And I mean, like involvement changes from person to person, semester to semester. And I mean, this is my first semester getting involved. So yeah, there's been other people in my department who also had been involved previously. But yeah, everyone's on board. Everyone's pretty much moving forward. They were really excited for this vote. You know, I think everyone's on the same page about wanting this to continue as far as it can or as far as we are able to see it through. Like, it's been really exciting. Um, it's been very energetic and very passionate. And um, it's, it's pretty much given me the energy to be able to do this job as union rep for my department. WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinsapple continues an ongoing series on how climate change impacts Indiana. In today's feature report, Weinsapple tackles Indiana's severe weather future. We now turn to that segment. First held in 1970 and recently reaching its 50th year anniversary, Earth Day is an annual holiday held to demonstrate support for environmental protection and celebrate life on our planet, with over a billion people participating in related events worldwide. This holiday has been extended to encompass all of April in what has been aptly named Earth Month. In celebration of Earth Month, there have been a series of news stories that began last week focusing on how Indiana is likely to be affected by climate change. Researchers have rigorously studied what Indiana's future will entail, and these stories will cover the likely outcomes and provide some specific context. This is the fourth episode of the series, focusing on the future of severe weather in Indiana, based around an interview with Dr. Cody Kirkpatrick, a senior lecturer with the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Indiana University. Six o'clock with an ITM8 investigation and a warning about Indiana's electric grid this winter. A new report suggests that a major winter storm could leave parts or all of the state without electricity. This is a big deal. We're joining you from Kilroy's tonight, right on Kirkwood Avenue here in Bloomington. And as you can see, there's still a lot of cleanup happening here from those floodwaters last night. Those with Kilroy's tell us they're hoping to open by Tuesday. It's tomorrow that our severe weather threat moves in. Check this out. Almost the entire state of Indiana is in that enhanced risk. That's a level three out of five. That means severe weather is going to be likely, and this threat is going to be an overnight threat that makes it even more dangerous. When the cold is stretching across the Midwest, the mayor of Indianapolis urged residents to stay indoors. Even 10 minutes of exposure may very well be harmful. Among the effects of climate change most publicized are extreme weather events. While it is still difficult to pinpoint how climate change might have impacted a singular historical event, scientists have found that overall, the planet is likely to experience an intensification of heat waves, droughts, storms, and winter weather. These more extreme variations in the weather of Indiana pose quite a danger to the state. 
Severe weather events can increase the amount of illnesses and deaths among vulnerable populations and lead to billions of dollars worth of damages to local communities statewide. Essential services such as emergency response vehicles, water supplies, and electricity could also be temporarily disrupted during these events. Overall, if climate change continues, this increase in severe weather events could harm Indiana and its Hoosier residents. In the previous episode, heat waves were discussed in regard to its impact on Hoosier farmers. To reiterate the findings, heat waves are projected to become more common due to climate change. Overall, summers in Indiana will be hotter. It is predicted that the number of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit could last for about two and a half months on average during the summer months. While for many people this just means they will stay inside more or head to the pool, these events can actually be quite deadly, as Dr. Kirkpatrick describes. Here in Indiana, I think a lot of people don't consider heat waves as a severe weather or as a type of extreme weather, but on average in the United States, uh, heat causes the most fatalities, the most weather-related fatalities every year, greater number than tornadoes, than flooding, than hurricanes on average every year. And with warmer temperatures that we know are occurring and are going to continue uh, to occur, you can, with those warmer temperatures, also evaporate more water into the atmosphere. So our heat index values, the measure that we use for how uncomfortable it is on a summer day, will also go up and will be higher more often. And so one of the big things we can expect here in Indiana is that summers are going to be all around a little bit more dangerous uh, because they will be both warmer and more humid. As Dr. Kirkpatrick explained, heat waves are extremely dangerous and can even exacerbate extreme weather, coinciding with heat waves or droughts, which may hurt the water supply and can lead to prime wildfire conditions that could impact parts of Indiana's forests. Similarly, the urban heat island effect, which is the increase in warmth in a city due to the structures such as buildings, will intensify and keep cities much hotter than surrounding rural areas. This makes finding a place outside to cool off way more difficult. However, the most important risk lies in the damage that can be done to human health. As stated previously, heat waves lead to the most weather-related deaths on average every year. High air temperatures can result in heat stroke and dehydration risk, which hurt the cardiovascular and nervous systems. Warmer weather can also harm the air quality for many areas of the state due to the increase in ozone levels present at the surface. Ozone, in large quantities, can wreak havoc on the body and lead to both lung and heart-related issues. Dr. Kirkpatrick explains who will be impacted most by these risks associated with heat waves. Anybody that is vulnerable, so the elderly, children, the homeless population, anyone who is vulnerable to heat stress, heat-related stress, will have to be much more vigilant as the years go by in the coming decades because this risk will increase. While some months may experience these warmer temperatures and heat waves, another threat posed by climate change is an increase in flooding. Research from the Environmental Protection Agency has found that since 1970, the average annual rainfall has increased for the majority of the Midwest by about 5 to 10 percent. However, what is most dangerous is the discovery that on the four wettest days of the year, the amount of precipitation received has increased by about 35%. These days are the ones that have the highest potential to result in the worst floods. Dr. Kirkpatrick details this phenomena 
and the resulting consequences. One of the things that we have already seen is an increase in rainfall here in the Midwest. Uh, we've seen that over the last few decades. In the really statistics that we've looked at, um, one thing that seems to be happening is that those what we would call high-end days, the extreme rainfall days, those have, in some cases, gotten more extreme. So on the heaviest days, or the, the days with heaviest rain, the totals are even higher. Those days certainly put extra stress on all of our river systems from the, the small creeks and streams that you have you know, running behind your house or uh, under the road or even to the, the bigger, more major river systems. Uh, and that extra stress comes because when the rains are very heavy, these thunderstorm rains that we get or when we get rain for several days in a row, uh, much of the water is runoff. It, it, it goes directly into the streams because the ground will saturate pretty quickly. And so that extra stress on the river systems of, of all sizes is something that we will have to be aware of and watchful for. Central Indiana is no stranger to extreme flooding. At the start of this program, you heard a news report that explained the damage done to Kilroy's on Kirkwood, one of the most well-known bars in Bloomington, and found right next to the campus of Indiana University. These floods occurred last June and were a result of heavy rains and thunderstorms moving over central Indiana. Dr. Kirkpatrick provides more details. It was sometime in June, I think, when the campus river flooded and part of Kirkwood, uh, there by Kirkwood in Indiana, flooded. And I think there was, uh, it was probably three or four feet of standing water down there. You could see some of the newspaper stands were floated. And I think there was a car or two that were caught up in that also. That was one of those special extreme cases that developed from multiple thunderstorms. So you had a period of several hours where thunderstorms kept forming over and over uh, over Bloomington and really almost along Highway 46 for some reason. So uh, Bloomington, Ellettsville, almost all the way up to Terre Haute. And they kept developing in the same place for a few hours. One thunderstorm on its own will not often cause something like that. But when you get thunderstorms for hours and hours, you are going to overwhelm even the best drainage system, even the best sewage system cannot handle that much rain in that short of a period of time. There's really nothing you could do. Those events are going to happen sometimes. For Bloomington, this was certainly a day in which too much stress was placed on the drainage system of the city. This event resulted in over 17 water rescues by the Bloomington Fire Department and the death of a Bloomington resident. In response to what he called a, quote, once-in-a-century rain, unquote, Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton announced the continuation of the Hidden River Pathway Project which seeks to connect the flood-prone areas of Kirkwood to an area south of the street in which better water infrastructure could alleviate some of the problems. While efforts are being made to prevent a future event from happening, the mayor believes that due to climate change, more events like this are likely to occur and be even more intense. Other areas of Indiana are likely to have their own problems. For example, a unique event that occurs in the weather of northwestern Indiana is lake-effect snow due to Lake Michigan. This weather pattern is what gives Chicago its extremely cold winters. For many, these events coincide with heavy snow that makes commute practically impossible due to the severe conditions and can often lead to airport delays and power outages. When this coincides with strong wind gusts, blizzards form, and freezing temperatures dominate the region. 
While this is one extreme, the lake effect snow can also result in an average snowball fight, non-serious type of weather day. Dr. Kirkpatrick provides more insight as to how lake effect snow works and how climate change might modify the winter weather in this section of the state. Lake effect snow and Lake Michigan are, uh, that lake effect snow is one of the fun things to experience in northern Indiana, I think, in the wintertime. And one of the things about uh, lake effect snow and Lake Michigan is that climate change does not mean that winter will go away uh, here in Indiana. Uh, we will still have cold weather. We will still get snow. And for lake effect snow specifically in northern Indiana, when you get that cold Canadian air that moves over the lake and then onto the land, that's what produces the lake effect snow. And so we will still get cold air from Canada. And as long as the lake is not frozen, you can get enough heat transfer from the water into the air to warm up the air and give it water vapor and produce clouds and snow. And we will still get that in the winter. And actually, it might be possible, we're still studying this, but it might be possible that we could have more opportunity for lake effect snow because the warming of the climate means that the Great Lakes are not freezing over for as long every winter. The water temperatures are a little bit warmer, so maybe there's a little bit more heat available from the water that can be taken up by the air and turned into clouds and snow in the winter. So that's one that we've got to watch. It might seem maybe counterintuitive, right, that a warming climate could produce more snow, but if it warms the water and gives us more chance to do that, it is possible that that could happen. Some of the greatest influences on the weather in our state and the rest of the country are the upper atmospheric conditions that are prime for the development of extreme weather events. In the atmosphere, temperature differences are what drive the changes in wind speeds that influence weather events on the ground. For example, scientists believe that climate change might be impacting the jet stream found in the northern hemisphere that typically blows west to east with the flows moving north and south. Dr. Kirkpatrick highlights how the shifts in the jet stream associated with climate change will likely alter the weather here in Indiana. So with climate change, one of the things that we are able to get a good handle on, and we are really confident about how things will change in the future, are these big, large atmospheric patterns, uh, flow patterns and circulation patterns and such. One of the big things that we are likely to see changes in is what we call the jet stream, the fast moving ribbon of air high in the atmosphere that really works to move our weather systems around. We have seen decades of warming in the Arctic already, and we know that that has disrupted the temperature differences across the globe that produce wind in the atmosphere. And it is likely that the jet stream will start to maybe fluctuate north and south more often, become more wavy. What that could do is lead to more surges of warm and cold air uh, here in Indiana more often. Uh, you know, we talk about how in the winter and even here in the spring, we get two or three days of cold weather and then two or three days of warm weather, and it just sort of oscillates back and forth. Those surges of warm and cold could become uh, more often. And I think that's something that if the jet stream continues to fluctuate more often, that's something we could come to expect. These fluctuations, according to many scientists, are being intensified by climate change 
and likely leading to more extreme weather events occurring. Such events include severe thunderstorms and tornadoes, which have made headlines recently due to the amount of tornadoes that have impacted the Midwest, Great Plains, and the South frequently throughout the last year. The conditions that can lead to the creation of these storm systems have become more common. With this in mind, Dr. Kirkpatrick gives an explanation of how thunderstorms are going to change and what researchers know now. So their intensity or their frequency, how often they happen, uh, how thunderstorms are going to change as the climate continues to change is something that we're still trying to get a better handle on. And part of the reason that that has been kind of challenging is that individual thunderstorms are really small. An individual thunderstorm might be 10 or 15 miles across uh, in size, and that's it. And so trying to understand how those small phenomena might change when it is the climate of the entire globe is changing has been uh, and continues to be a little bit challenging. So we're still trying to hone in on that. But we know that to get thunderstorms, we have ingredients that we need. We need warm and humid air, which we will definitely have. And for those thunderstorms to become severe, producing damaging winds, uh, large hail or tornadoes, we need an additional ingredient, wind shear. We need the wind speed and the wind direction uh, changing as you go higher up into the atmosphere compared to here at the ground. And one of the ways that we're trying to track how severe weather could change in the future is just to ask the question, well, how many days a year do we have all of those ingredients come together in the same place at the same time? Most of the studies that we have so far uh, show that across most of the United States, we expect those ingredients that produce the severe thunderstorms that can cause wind, hail, and tornadoes to come together more frequently. That is the expectation for now. We are still trying to understand, though, exactly where and exactly how often, because remember, thunderstorms and tornadoes are even smaller. Thunderstorms are small phenomena. So pinpointing exactly who will get how much more severe weather and exactly how much is still open. But overall, in aggregate, the expectation is that they'll probably happen uh, a little bit more often. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, it seems that all areas of the state are prone to the severe weather that is expected to occur more frequently in the future. Northwestern Indiana may have more lake effects snow-related events, while central Indiana may have more floods. The knowledge about climate change's overall impact on Indiana's weather is an ongoing source of study, but at the moment, steps are being taken to prepare for what is currently known. Local governments have experienced severe weather events and are implementing solutions that might mitigate the effects of another one. Being knowledgeable about the increasing frequency of severe weather events due to climate change is an effective tool to convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. Tomorrow, join us as we discuss the steps being taken across the state to develop plans in anticipation for the effects of climate change and an interview with the Executive Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. Up next, solar good news on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. Host and producer Richard Fish says solar energy is really on the way and more prevalent locally than most people know. 
Fish breaks down how to find out if it will benefit you without spending a dime and how to stay away from any scammers and swindlers. We turn to Richard Fish now for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Last week, the subject was solar power and some of the dangers and difficulties of getting into this rapidly growing field. Now, thanks to one of our listeners, I've got some more information and good news to share. Solar panels that turn sunlight into electricity have been getting steadily better, easier to make, cheaper to buy, simpler to install, more reliable, and more efficient. And there are more of them here, locally, than even I realized. Here's a website to check out, bloomington.in.gov slash sustainability slash solarize. Or a search for Bloomington Solarize brings it right up. Turns out that the city of Bloomington has spent millions in the last few years putting solar power to work all over town, with 34 major installations so far. And if you are interested in adding solar power to your house, there is now a volunteer group which can give you free help in figuring out the costs and benefits before you spend a dime. Even better, there are grants available to help pay for solar installations in homes and businesses. The group is called Solar Indiana Renewable Energy Network, and the initials spell SIREN. It's a nonprofit, so the website is sirensolar.org. When you go to sirensolar.org, you find a lot of information right there about how it all works and what the costs and benefits can be. You can arrange for a volunteer to come out to your own property for free and help you figure out what the numbers would be like in your particular case. Siren buys solar panels in quantity, so you can get them at the lowest prices, and they do the research on what kinds are safest and most efficient and easiest to keep up. And the Siren volunteers can find out if you're eligible for an Indiana Solar for All grant, not a loan, an outright grant, that could set you up with a solar power installation that will pay for itself in an amazingly short time. As we said last week, everybody's house is different, and there are a lot of factors to consider. But you can take a look at one of them right now. How much money did you pay for electricity last year? Take that number and raise it by 2 to 5% to allow for increased rates and global warming. Then go to sirensolar.org and find out if you're in the ballpark already or how to tell when the constantly improving technology and constantly lowering costs will make it a deal you can't afford to pass up. Best of all, of course, you won't have to worry about being sunburned by solar swindlers throwing sunspots in front of your eyes. At sirensolar.org, if it sounds too good to be true, it really isn't. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. 
Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel and Abe Shapiro. Our feature was produced by Nathaniel Weinzapfel. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Strike Mike is produced by Mia Beach and Hugh Farrell. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB Local News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions, climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, longer.